I think hospital design has been under theorized and under prioritized in design and architecture education. Mm. It's been considered a kind of sub discipline. It's compromised. It's too functional. It's not beautiful enough. It's not the museum of this or the museum of that. And I think that has rendered the profession to not consider it a fundamental priority. And I have the exact opposite opinion. I think. Hospitals are like uber architecture. They're the hardest architectural problem to solve because they, of course, have to be super functional and they have to be dignified and beautiful in order to be successful. Welcome to Design Lab. I am your host, Bon Ku. This is the last episode of 2021. I hope you're getting a chance to relax. I had a great Christmas last week, got a few days off from my work in the hospital and the lab, so it was nice to chill out. A public service announcement. Omicron is bad. I've been seeing a lot of people getting infected, even if they are double vaccinated. If you haven't gotten your booster yet, please do and stay safe. This is part two of my conversation with Michael Murphy. He is the founding principal and executive director of Mass Design Group. It's a collective of architecture and design advocates dedicated to the construction of dignity. Since their beginning, Their portfolio documents work in over a dozen countries and spans the area of healthcare, education, housing, urban development, food systems, indigenous sovereignty, and the public monument. Michael has a great TED Talk. It has 1.7 million views. And he was awarded the Al Filipov Medal for Peace and Justice in 2017. Michael finds a time to teach a lot. He teaches at the Georgia Institute of Technology, Ohio State's University Knowlton School, Harvard Graduate School of Design, University of Michigan, and Columbia University as well. Under Michael's guidance, Mass has been awarded globally and featured in over 900 publications. Most recently, Mass was selected as the 2022 AIA Architecture Firm of the Year. This is a huge award, and they were also featured on CBS's 60 Minutes. Mass was also recognized as the winner of the AIA 2021 Collaborative Achievement Award. They received Wall Street Journal's 2020 Architecture Innovator Award, the National Arts and Letters Award for 2017, and the Cooper Hewitt National Design Award, also in 2017. Check out Michael's new book. It's called The Architecture of Health, Hospital Design and the Construction of Dignity. And check out his new exhibit that they did with Ellen Lupton and the Cooper Hewitt. It's called Design and Healing, Creative Responses to Epidemics. So this is part two of our conversation. If you have not listened to part one, I highly recommend it. Just go back to last week's episode and check it out. And you could support Design Lab by rating us on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just open up one of those apps on your phone and give us five stars. And if you really love us, give us a comment. And right now you can only do that on Apple Podcasts and sign up for our cool newsletter. The link can be found on our Twitter account at Design Lab Pod. Now here's part two of my conversation with Michael Murphy. We we got to meet a couple of weeks ago at this cool exhibit at the Cooper Hewitt uh, Museum that's called Design and Healing, 
creative responses to the epidemics and an exhibit that you and your team at Mass Design Group did with my design hero, Ellen Lupton, and her team at the Cooper Hewitt. It's gotten some rave reviews. Can you tell us about that exhibit? Yeah, we were just totally just overwhelmed with gratitude with, with the Cooper Hewitt team and with Ellen Lupton and her amazing team. They originally had reached out to us to develop a show on design and healthcare in 2019. So we were in discussion already to think about what a kind of, what, what a kind of representative cross-sectoral the, the show might be to show like the relationship between design and health. And then in 2020, we suddenly are in the middle of this epidemic crisis. So much of our work in the past had been about epidemics, be it tuberculosis. We worked on it, dealt with cholera in Haiti. We worked on um, emergency response to Ebola. So we were looking at healthcare spaces in response to epidemic already. And then we have COVID break. And so actively and in real time, we're redesigning in partnership with Ellen and her team, what the exhibit must recognize and represent and how it can kind of sift through the, the noise of all of the inputs that we're getting and redesigning our environments in real time, much like medical professionals do these workarounds every day. Our cities, our restaurants, our neighborhoods were being redesigned spatially in front of us in order to address the inputs we had from the epidemic. And we wanted to both represent that as well as anchor the contemporary designs against historic examples of where we saw this in the past. So it's been two years in production and we're really proud of it. And I'm really glad there's been a a good response, but it's really the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's so many examples that we, we hope people come and can see their own communities as places that are actively being redesigned, that they can be part of that. And then also demand more from their own communities and their own infrastructures about how they could respond to some of the lessons that we were able to pull from that. I was overwhelmed just going through the exhibit. It is it was just such a rich experience uh, for me because I've been thinking about this intersection for such a long time and to just see it, it's such a beautiful exhibit and I just want to give a shout out to Crystal and Chris Saka for their generous support for the exhibit. They're amazing. Love them. And there's so many great features of of the exhibit. I was wondering, do you have a favorite one that you want to share? Yeah. I mean, thanks for that. And thanks to Crystal and Chris Saka who did provide support to make this happen. You know, I I think I'll just say of the exhibit, well, there's a lot of things I love in it. And one of my favorite things in the exhibit is actually not a design that we're highlighting that happened, but actually these custom uh, bespoke art pieces that we actually brought in from the amazing artist, Sam Stubblefield, who is a, an artist, a sound artist. And I, you enter the exhibit with this installation of his, and we've been working with him on spaces of care and in relationship with him in, in a couple of different projects. And I think it's meaningful that that we, again, can use not just the product, but art and interpretation and experience to also kind of ground all of the ways in which health and design are interrelating in our lives. When you walk into the exhibit, you see these mannequins and this projection screen. And on the mannequin is an EKG monitoring helmet. And it monitors brainwaves during certain activities that Sam asked 
the the youth choir, Brooklyn youth choir, to to perform. He filmed them, and then he also monitored them, and then he turns that data into certain musical notes, and that musical composition creates this kind of symphony of brainwaves. And it's this beautiful example of how one of the incredible kind of cusps of medical care that's on the horizon, of course, you experience it with your Fitbits or others is like self-monitoring and monitoring, being able to tell what's going on in our biochemical world, in our physiological world of our own bodies, like bringing that invisible information visible, of course, is what has doctors have been asked to do for so many years, but that's going to improve the quality of care, improve what doctors are able to look at and medical professionals are able to monitor and also help us be much like we were talking about with Nora Health, like partners in our own healthcare delivery program. Mm. But it also creates these other ways to understand that information. We can interpret it. We can listen to it. We can touch it. And so I, I really appreciate that Sam and his team are taking that information and turning it into something experiential as well. And not just oh, I walked a thousand steps today. Well, what does it sound like to walk a thousand steps? How do we yeah. understand that in different ways? I think that's also really cool. And is that the music you could hear at the end of the exhibit? You hear it in the beginning. Uh-huh. And then at the end is a different installation that we worked on with Sam that is a, it's about to open uh, this year at the Brigham and Women's uh, Hospital in Boston. We worked on an installation to honor the caregiver's of the Brigham who, you know, continually, but in in particular fought during the pandemic to save so many lives. And so we created this feedback loop design where patients or others who are treated at the Brigham can write notes of gratitude or submit notes of gratitude and thanks to their caregivers. And those notes of gratitude, those statements of thank you can are then translated into this symphony of music, the symphony of gratitude. So there'll be this installation wall at the Brigham where you can go and experience what gratitude sounds like, but also read the physical thank you notes and kind of have this feedback loop where these amazing professionals every day are doing thankless work, literally thankless work and not getting to get the response from the people's lives that they're saving. And that I think is also part of this missing connector piece that we could redesign and reconnect, say, wow, you saved my life. You, this team delivered our, our baby and took care of our family so well. Like you protected our family, gave us this amazing experience, made us feel safe. Like, how do we thank you? How do yeah. you go back and feel restored? How do you get the kind of validation that such relentless, insufferable, challenging work every day from these amazing people is unable to kind of feel that in a way. So we're creating a a kind of installation for them, a place of gratitude for them. I wish every hospital had that because those little cards that I got during the pandemic, maybe it was from an elementary school class. I don't know. They were so cool. I was like, oh, this is neat. But then they ended up getting thrown away later because shift change and but memorializing that I think would really inject some humanity in the experience is the, the suffering that we have all collectively gone through. And Yeah. And healthcare uh, professionals are suffering. You're yeah. seeing them leave their jobs. You're seeing a huge wave of people quitting. And actually we were inspired by the kind of grassroots experience of during the height of the pandemic in April and 
May and June of 2020, when people would lean out their window at 7 p.m. and clap and bang pots and pans and say thank you for 20 minutes to caregivers. That, that experience, that kind of collective public symphony of gratitude was our inspiration. Like that was happening. And how do we memorialize that as something that can happen every day in a way and change and evolve and take on new meaning, even outside of the height of something extreme like the pandemic? Yeah. One of my favorite parts of the exhibit is this like juxtapositions of old versus modern. And you know, right when you enter into the beginning, there is the hospital, the tuberculosis hospital that you designed and built in Haiti. And then you have the sanatorium that you talked about earlier that was built in 1932, the Paimo sanatorium, did I pronounce that yeah. right? Yeah, or Paimo, yeah. Paimo, and that was in Finland, is that correct? That's right, it's in Finland, yeah. Like, why do you decide to juxtapose those two designs next to each other? There's so much we can learn from the, the, it's the sanatory of the early part of the 20th century, but Alvar Aalto in particular as an architect is just such a humane architect. And I think one of the things that's worth elevating in that, in that project, not only is it a key building in the development of the modern movement of architecture, people look at it, architects and designers look at it not as only a medical space, they look at it as like a paradigm shifting modern architectural space. Yeah, because when I was looking at it, I was like, this looks like it could have been built yesterday or something like that. Yeah. And what, can you speak on like, what is modern movement? Like, what does that mean in architecture for those of us who don't know? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the big parts of the early part of the 20th century was architecture shifted in a big way from ornamental kind of ornamental buildings of both both neoclassical, but also what was called eclectic eclecticism, a kind of picking and choosing different types of facades and window treatments and column capitals and all sorts of different ornaments to being de-ornamented, to being stripped down into clean lines with no ornament buildings that were simply laid out that had, you know, that were white, that were like really simplified in many ways. And there's an incredible book by Beatrice Colomina called X-Ray Architecture, which makes the argument that many of the choices that ushered in the modern movement and made this entirely new aesthetic uh, agenda were actually driven by healthcare aspirations. That the clean lines and the white surfaces were about cleanability and sanitizing the spaces. The big porches and flat roofs were about occupation for bringing people outside, even in apartment buildings, flattening roofs and that thing. The ribbon windows and healthy like glass, floor to ceiling glass operable, you know, doors or windows were about getting sun cure. So that is wild. <laughs> yeah. And this idea that the modern movement is actually driven by healthcare principles is carried forward into Alvar Alta's example, which we show, but even an example we didn't show, Richard Neutra in LA mm -hmm. was developing some of his original buildings in the same time period in the 20s, 30s, and 40s around these same principles for leading thinkers around living a healthy lifestyle. And so I think we try to make the argument that there were periods of time where 
architecture and design and healthcare were interrelated. They were intermixed. I think that happened in the sanitation era, which was sort of after in the 1860s to the turn of the century, but also in the early part of the modern movement, that was certainly the case. But they kind of become untangled when we can mechanically ventilate everything mm. that untangling happens and you can just sort of have floor plates that are indeterminate and you're just going to bring in a mechanical engineer later and figure out how to ventilate them. So I think it was really meaningful to look back at those examples, not just for how they perform functionally, but also how aesthetically they change and the formal agenda, the beauty changes based on these same ideals. So we, compare that to what we developed in Haiti, which is also a very thin building, but wrapped in a slightly different way in plan. It creates a kind of courtyard strategy, which moves air in the center out and kind of cools the interior and allows for outdoor waiting areas for doctors and nurses to be protected against infectious patients who are in their isolated rooms. What I love about that TB hospital in Haiti is that it's beautiful. Like I want to work in that hospital that looks like that. It was a really funny, um, there was a really funny story I found out later, which was when we were interviewing, we had it, we bid out who would build it. And there were a couple of applicants, contractors locally. And obviously we chose one and they went and built it. But someone told us later that one of the other bidders who didn't win took the plans and went and built a hotel elsewhere in the country with the same plan. Get out. I'm still waiting to get the, the images, but I love that because yeah, to some degree, that same sense of hospitality, it is, it's a single room hotel with open air walkways and generous convening spaces. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense that it would be applicable. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, we're, we're always talking about in healthcare. It's like, what if we had a hospitality, like your best end hotel in your area, but what if we're the opposite? What if the ho hotel industry goes, Hey, look how hospitals are delivering hospitality to their patients. We should be more like them. I think that's a, I think there's a lot of exploration that could happen in that space. There's so much to learn from these interrelated services and how people care, think only think about the kind of experience design of an individual as they move through a system that UX field could do so much in medicine. And yeah. it's also about how healthcare is not just healthcare at the institution is one thing, but of course, as we're trying to move healthcare into the, into urgent care centers and into primary care centers and into the home. And even that experience becomes, even though it becomes more humane and more familiar and more comfortable, it's also a, a kind of different experience that we could design around. So yeah, it's thinking about all those levels of, as we get closer and closer to the the institution, which is the one place that can do specific types of treatment and is necessary in each community, how do we not lose the individual's experience and design a kind of dignified experience for the workers and the patients while also maintaining its functionality? It is a challenge, but it is something we should certainly aim for. Yeah. It reminds me of this quote by Inga Safran, she's an architectural critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer. She says, diseases are the most powerful architects. Mm. And I'm wondering, looking towards the future, thinking about this cataclysmic time that there that we're in, is SARS-CoV-2 going to reshape buildings and the design of cities? I'm curious to know what your thoughts on that were. 
Well, I think they already have. I mean, the buildings are just slow in response, but buildings are on a longer time horizon than the epidemic time horizon, you know, four to five years. But I think what we're going to see, I would hope, and I certainly will be pushing for, is both policy change, code upgrading and change, as well as building change around what I would call breathability. Mm. Buildings need to breathe. And we now have 70 years of examples after the, the kind of since the mid-century of buildings that don't breathe well. And some of the biggest examples are hospitals, but there's also we're seeing it in you know, every other type of building, schools, nursing homes, of course, carceral facilities, of course, apartment buildings, you, know, and you name it, everything mm-hmm. is, doesn't breathe that well. And while I think optimistically and aspirationally, this will be a place that we need to build more advocacy and examples of breathable buildings. I think there's also, we are also already seeing a resistance to that. I mean, I think that, I don't know if you followed the new dormitory being designed, which is supposed to house like 4,000 people in windowless rooms. What? Um, Oh oh my gosh. Using cruise ships as the example for how to put as many people in one space as possible. I mean, this, to me, just looks like an infectious disease nightmare, but it also appears like just a complete crisis of indignity. You know, and I, I find it fascinating that has not only been approved, but is still being proposed in this day and age when we've just gone through or in the middle of this experience where cohabitation in spaces which are potentially infectious is so dangerous and risky. And I look at it also as a problem-solving tool. It's like they've solved one problem. How do you put as many people as possible in as small spaces as possible, which is the problem that institutions and prisons and hospitals to some degree have been asking for a long time, but they haven't solved the other problem, which is like, how do you create an environment that you want to live in that is a home for people, that the experience is positive and that uh, doesn't like completely break down once people start to inhabit it. And I have no faith that that entity is going to survive very long. And I think it's an example of a kind of limited problem solving of the building as a mechanism for creating environments where people have to live, work, and and study. And you said something important before about policy redesign, and that's important around these codes that what if we had a building breathability code, just like we did with fire codes, we would never build a building that wasn't uh, built so it wouldn't just burn down. So there's all these fire codes, but we don't have these breathability codes, right? For buildings? Yeah. I mean, we have, especially in the United States, and we have an incredible amount of heavy regulatory infrastructure on building codes, especially in hospitals, and a lot of it around infection control. But I, I think what, we're, what we see is that some of these infection control principles disrupt other infection control strategies. And some of them are really about reducing litigation as, as much as they are about uh, actually keeping people healthy. So, and in in particular, the more heavy the infrastructure of the regulatory uh, environment is and and, and the less adaptable it is, the harder it is for smaller institutions to comply. So I think there's some ways in which the code can be streamlined, improved in certain areas, streamlined in others and rethought in in others to make sure that buildings like at at their core are breathable. And that I think would reduce the problem of having too big of floor plates without opportunities for natural or ventilated air. 
And we saw this in hospitals around the country. Those that were built in the 70s with inoperable windows are not the ones that you want to put COVID patients in. Yeah. You know, Mount Sinai did this in New York and they, I talk about in the book, they chose the 1930s bed tower, which had operable windows to put the COVID patients in because they could at least be more sure that they're getting enough airflow, as you said, with a fan in the window with some negative pressure strategies that were hacked together in an old building than the ones that were built in the last 25 years. And another hack that we're doing bootstrapping is putting party tents outside to see patients because- that was the safest place to, even when it was cold, to do that initial triage and determine if the patient had COVID symptoms, like which part of the emergency room that they're going to go into. I think that's a really good example. And, and when we thought about like school design today, and I think during the height of the pandemic, we were on a, I was on a working group to think about school design in Cambridge. I was making the case that the open air school movement of the mid-century was one that we should be looking to, which was put kids outside. Yeah. And I heard over and over again, oh, it's impossible. It's cold in the winter. I said, look, solving for health first is what we should prioritize. Solving for comfort second is a design problem we can deal with. You can put people outside where they can breathe better and give them blankets, give them good winter coats, put heat lamps. Like there's ways to address that. But if we solve for comfort first, they got to be inside where they have a comfortable room, then solving for airflow and solving for health. And that is much more challenging. You need, you know, to monitor X amount of air changes per hour. You need this many fans You need this many like in-room filters. It became a very complicated and very difficult to traverse system that required all new mechanical systems. And I was kind of constantly saying like, we're not going to mechanically ventilate our way out of this problem. Mm. We have to change our orientation. So I think you, as a medical professional, triaging outside is actually a really smart hack, but also one that might suggest future medical spaces. Maybe they have outdoor waiting pavilions like we designed in Butaro. We have outdoor waiting areas for triage that are instilled as permanent infrastructure, not as temporary infrastructure. Well, maybe that's a future that we see in spaces that can accommodate that without having to worry about whether they're comfortable or not, mm. or solve for comfort issues in a different way than like bringing them inside and having a certain temperature. Yeah. And before the pandemic, I got to visit a hospital in Singapore and that's what they did when the ambulance came to the hospital. I was surprised that they were doing that initial intake outside of the hospital because it was pretty freaking hot outside. It was like 90 degrees. And this is like, Singapore has one of the best healthcare systems on the planet and they were doing this outside triage and that probably worked out very well for them during the pandemic. Yeah. You see Uh, that all over the world. I mean, certainly in, in warmer climates, it it seems more real reasonable or realizable. I've seen it in Pakistan. We've seen it in India. We certainly have designed it into our own facilities. We're working in Bangladesh. We've worked in the Caribbean. I think But I think what's fascinating is somehow we've thought that it's impossible to do so in cold climates Mm -hmm. where the history does not support that claim. I mean, I go back to the Paimo Sanatorium. It's in Finland, you know, like freezing cold in the winter. Like, no, right. Yeah. Davos is in the mountains of Switzerland. I mean, it's like these are places where they are cold climates and you can still have outdoor waiting and outdoor comfort. We just have to design the system differently. 
And we've been doing that with testing, COVID testing throughout the world. It's been out yeah. primarily outdoors, got the safest, and we've been able to do it at scale. I think my final question for you is, I want to work in a mass design group design hospital in the U.S., when can that happen? Because I look at your hospitals in Rwanda and Haiti, and I think this is this combination of beauty and function. I want to work in that hospital. And I know that you had uh, built your first like family health center in McKinney, Texas. Congratulations on that. Yeah. Is there a hospital on the horizon for Mass Design Group? And what are their challenges to do that in the US? Yeah, there's some things on the horizon that I... I we are, we've been recently working with an incredible group in Cleveland around their kind of master planning of medical facilities as well. And yeah, we did finish our first clinic in the U.S. in McKinney, Texas. It's a family health center. So it's a sort of outpatient uh, care facility, especially for underinsured residents of the community. And in that condition, we're having more than just health care, but there's areas for ESL services and training and basic amenities and needs. It becomes a kind of community center as much as a healthcare center. I think that's an interesting advance in primary care. But I agree with you, Bon, I and mean, we're eager to support medical systems in the U.S. that are actively rethinking and trying to challenge what they can do. And like many of these problems, like there's a hold on who, who gets to decide. I mean, there's like five firms that do every hospital in America. And while they do, Unbelievable. you know, while they do highly sophisticated work and obviously they have a good understanding of the codes and some of the work is really beautiful and, and deals with these challenges in productive ways. And I could list a couple of examples where I've really been impressed. I think there's room for expanding the aperture of how we approach these big systems and these big structures in so many different hospitals. And we're eager to partner and support organizations. So if you're interested in rethinking us, please give us a call because I think redesign of the healthcare systems in the US, especially after the pandemic, is something that I could not think is more pressing or urgent or necessary for designers to engage in. And I think one of the, I would just say one of the other points of this book, one of the big reasons we wanted to finish this book is I think hospital design has been under theorized and under prioritized in design and architecture education. Mm. It's been considered a kind of sub discipline. It's compromised. It's too functional. It's not beautiful enough. It's not the museum of this or the museum of that. And I think that has rendered the profession to not consider it a fundamental priority. And I have the exact opposite opinion. I think hospitals are like uber architecture. They're the hardest architectural problem to solve because they, of course, have to be super functional and they have to be dignified and beautiful in order to be successful. And so they need more designers and more architects to be immersed in them to try to solve you know, these incredible challenges that are not going to be solved by one firm or one designer. They're going to be solved by a movement that like immerses many of us in these questions integrates us into the systems in which you work, works alongside you in your own care treatment programs and tries to solve them together. So I'm hoping that this book is a sort of beginning of a sort of rethinking of why hospitals matter as architecture and how we might theorize medical architecture as a sort of foundational understanding of, of how architecture shifts and how society shifts architecture itself. Amen, brother. I love it. Congrats to you on winning the 2022 AIA Architecture Firm Award. It's probably one of the highest honors for an architecture firm. And it's given to a firm that has produced distinguished architecture for the last 10 years. So a huge 
honor for you and your team. Well-deserved. Well, I appreciate you saying that. It was really a huge surprise and we're indebted to so many people who wrote in letters for us and supported us, but it was an honor. It really is. We've thought of ourselves as sort of trying to, you know, offer a different practice model and to be acknowledged within the AIA as a practice model of the year is a really meaningful recognition. It feels very validating. And I hope it opens up new avenues for new and different practice models to emerge in the future to address these very intractable and complicated problems that we face that I think design and service and health all over relate and reveal. This epidemic has certainly revealed how much design is necessary and how many more ways in which we might approach it have yet to be explored. So that's my hope out of this. Well, I'm glad you left Renaissance Poetry as a college student and went into architecture. <laughs> we, we need you. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show, Michael. It's so good to connect. Great to talk with you, Bond. Thanks for all you do for health and design. It's such a meaningful thing to be here. You're a real mensch and a real advocate. So we really appreciate you creating this space for us. Thank you. You can learn more about Michael Murphy and his work at Mass Design Group, both on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, they can be found at Mass Design Lab, on Instagram, at Mass Design Group. Thank you for listening to our show in 2021 and for supporting us. And remember, the way that you support us is by rating us both on Apple and Spotify podcasts. You can reach out to me both on Twitter and Instagram. It can be found at B-O-N-K-U on Twitter at D-R-B-O-N-K-U on Instagram. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you in 2022.